Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Harpreet Singh, co-founder and co-CEO of Launchable, a software testing platform that's raised over 12 million in funding. Harpreet, thanks for chatting with me today. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Brett. Not a problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background? Sure. So I came to the US in 1998, so I've been here for a while. I came here to do my master's and uh, I originally wanted to do something in AI. So I think I was like two decades too early. The other thing I wanted to do was there was this company called Sun Microsystem, which I can best describe as, as the Google of its days. And it had invented a new technology called Java. And as a software developer, I was really, really excited about it. And all I wanted to do was come in and work for Sun, which I did for about 10 years. I realized like I'm not a big company guy and jumped into a startup called CloudBees. I was in the early five or 10 people size company. I eventually was the head of product, uh, VP of product and design there and took the company up to 500 people. I joined Atlassian and was head of their uh, developer product called Bitbucket. And eventually I started Launchable Inc. uh, about three and a half, four years ago. Now take us back to 98 when you were first moving to the US. What was going on in your head? What was going on inside my head? I was, you know, fundamentally really, really, I'm a technologist at heart. And I think I lucked out by graduating in computer science just when things were sort of taking off. And, uh, you know, the year 2000 was around the corner. The dot-com boom was just starting. So it felt like really, really exciting. And I worked for a, a CEO back in India who was just fantastic. And uh, what I realized working for him is like, well, if I really need to compete, I need to have a master's and my bachelor's not going to cut it. And that's where I naturally looked to the US and I decided that here, you know, I should come in, spend some time educating myself and then see where I can take myself. A few other questions you'd like to ask. And the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, mm-hmm. what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about that? So I... I actually admired three founders, and I had the fortune of working for all three. The first I already mentioned, his name is Anand Deshpande, and he founded a company in Pune, India, called Persistent Systems. It just crossed like one billion in revenue, and it has like, I think, 15,000 people working in that company. And when I worked for them, they were like less than 40 people. And I was this kid, just out of college, really was hustling my way, and He took me under his wings and uh, I learned a lot from him. The next founder I really liked was Sasha Labure. He was the founder and CEO of uh, CloudBees, which is a a DevOps company and it's a leader in DevOps. And I worked for him for maybe eight years. And the the last person I I really admire is Scott Farquhar, who is the CEO, co-CEO of Atlassian. And I worked for him for a short while. And I was thinking about this, the thread that ties them together for me is like, 
they were all people for CEOs. They really, really cared about the people. They cared about building a, a great culture. They cared about like hiring really, really smart people and then listening to them. So I think that's fundamentally what I have taken away from all, all three. What about the title of co-CEO? Is that something that you, you took from your time at Atlassian? Yeah, that did inspire me. I saw that working. And uh, when I started this company with my co-founder, we were peers back at CloudBees and we both felt passionate about building a company. We both felt like a CEO role is something that we wanted to grow into. And having seen this work at Atlassian, I was, uh, I was like, yeah, wh why don't we do this? It makes for better decisions. You have to sound your decision with your co-CEO. You just can't make them unilaterally. So there's a higher bar in terms of like, you know, crossing that bar before you make a crucial decision. And I think that makes for a better company. And then the other thing is you can split stuff that you don't want to do. And likely the other person would want to do that. And we tend to kind of split things that way, right? So you know, that works out as well. So instead of just completely being overworked, jumping from task after task, we can easily divvy up things. So that works very well as well. We had Henrique on from Rex a couple of months ago, and they also have the, the co-CEO partnership there. And how he described it is they have an internal CEO and an external CEO. So in his role, he's the one who's you know speaking to investors. He's doing media interviews and, and all of those types of things, while the other co-CEO is you know, focused more internally. So for you, what was that kind of split and how did you guys divide up you know, who was going to be responsible for what? So I don't think we have like an internal and external CEO thing. It's more like maybe Atlassian. In Atlassian, Scott and Mike, I, I think they just divide this by business functions, right? They, uh, one guy has product, a set of products, a set of associated things around it. And the other guy has, you know, the marketing function. So in our case, what we did is I sort of evolved into picking up sales and marketing and go-to-market strategy while my co-founder evolved into sort of picking product and he was an engineering person and he picked that up. So that's how we've, you know, split things up. And then along the way, you know, things have naturally evolved. So, you know, as I said, one of us likes something, the other doesn't, the other guy just picks that up, right? So that's, that's how we've done it. So there's no internal, external kind of thing going on. Got it. Interesting. Another question we like to ask is about books. So is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you and how we like to frame this? We got this from an author named Brian Holiday. He calls mm -hmm. them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and, and just how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? I'm a voracious reader. So I like, I read quite a bit. So books leave, tend to leave these, these marks on you. So I, can't say like there's like one book that completely rocked my world and changed my worldview, but a couple come to mind. So one is so good, they cannot ignore you. And in that, I tend to like offer these to like nephews and nieces and so on. And the premise by the author is that too often people are like saying that they want to run after passion and like find something that they are passionate about, as opposed to passion comes in once you get deep into a particular subject. Right, which is an interesting sort of perspective, which is quite contrary to what's being taught to people, you know, when they're young, which is like, go find something that you're really, really passionate about when they actually don't know much about that, any areas in life. So I find that 
that very instructive. The second book uh, is from the same author. It's called Deep Work. And uh, that book is about, really it's made for the world today where our attention is distracted by so many things, Instagram and tweets and Facebooks and so on and so forth. And the author makes an argument that if you have to do anything serious, you have to really do deep work. And by that, you you know, you have to go really deep into a subject, right? That book has kind of spoke to me in terms of my thinking, which is like when you are working in a big company, you tend to have all your time slots booked out in 30-minute increments. And so if you want to do anything serious, it takes months to kind of get there. I liked it so much that we sort of brought one of the concepts back in our company, and that concept is called Get Shit Done, right? Atlassian has that, actually. But we brought it in, and uh, one of our most popular blogs is around that topic. And what that is, is we just say in our company that there are no meetings on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Now, it's not a mandate. It is uh, something that we encourage people. And what it does is those three days, you can just sit down and spend time thinking and really producing quality work. And that quality work pushes you like months ahead. That's something that I've brought into the company. Nice. Is that the Cal Newport book? That is the Cal Newport book. Nice. Yeah, I, I love that book. I read that a couple of years ago, but now that you brought it up, I, I need to go back to that because it is a it's a fascinating read and it's it's really useful. Yeah, and for those listeners who want to bring this in, I've seen like people skimp on this in terms of like they'll say they want to do get shit done days and then they'll keep like two hours and my response is two hours is never enough. So if you want to bring in something, at least keep half a day because it takes like a while to get you yourself in the context of doing deep work. And then it takes three or four hours before that work gets produced. So like at least half a day is something that they should start by experimenting. And a lot of your listeners are like founders. So this should be something that you bring across the company. The earlier you bring in, the better it is. It's very hard to sort of put this in when somebody walks in and they have like a, I'm going to jump from 30 minute to 30 minute meeting mindset. <laughs> yeah, makes a lot of sense. Now let's switch gears here and let's dive deeper into the company. So how we like to start this off is let's talk about the problem. What problem does Launchable solve? So we are in the DevOps space, right? And the problem that we solve is almost all organizations are writing tests and these tests take a very long time to run. And the longer it takes you to run and sort of go through these tests, the slower is your release cycle. But you really can't skimp on running tests, right? So what we do is we have an approach called predictive test selection. It's a machine learning based approach. And we can look at your com code coming in and we can predict which tests are likely to fail based on your past commits. And by sort of predicting that, we can just run those tests first and we can help devs and QA find errors much, much earlier without spending the entire cycle of running tests, right? So we've kind of bring in about 40 to 80% reduction in testing times once people bring us in. And take me back to 2019 when you were first launched in the company. What was it about this problem specifically that made you say, yep, that's it. Let's build a company around that. Because I'm sure there were probably a lot of problems that you've encountered throughout your career that you could have built a company around. What was it about this problem specifically? Right. So we actually thought about a lot of problems in the context of like, where should we spend our energies on, right? 
And a word here about my co-founder. Uh, my co-founder has created a software called Jenkins, which every engineering team out there uses, right? It's about sort of productionizing your continuous integration and continuous delivery builds. And uh, we both had worked together at CloudBees, actually building an enterprise company around it, right? And so as we were looking at this, we were looking at companies that we've helped over the years with DevOps transformations. We came to this place that, you know, we were taking them far enough, but it wasn't fast enough for organizations. And his unique insight, this was his idea, his unique insight was like, look, we can connect all these tools and we can, you know, create all these processes in your software development life cycle. But what's really slowing you down are the tests. And nobody is actually looking at like optimizing tests because you know what? Everybody's figured, well, that's a tax that I need to pay, right? I'm going to run them. And no matter what, I need to run them. Nobody's looking at, you know, optimizing that. And it truly was a, like a thing different moment for us. It was like, we were like, the last 20 years, people have been saying, create more tests, run more tests. Nobody is saying like, no, 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 you can actually run less tests to get this, the same level of confidence. And we think we can do it. And that's really what made me jump into the company. And can you talk to us about the scale that you're operating at today? So any numbers that you can share just around growth or adoption would be super helpful. I think we are still in the early stages. In terms of growth, we have a small customer base that's doubled in the last year. What we find is when customers bring us in, they tend to really love us. So we've managed to double the sort of footprint with the customers that have come in in the last you know year or two. Uh, we've got a number of them over to six figures, which generally you know takes a very long time to get there. And I feel pretty pleased that we've been able to get these early customers to like six figures and doubling their footprint. It's almost like once you press the turbo button on your car and it starts going fast, right? Your bills start going faster and like you're getting faster feedback. It's very hard for them to sort of now say, I'm going to press this button and slow my engineering down. So that doesn't quite happen. Makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Talk to us about those first early customers. What were those conversations like, and how did you manage to get them across the line? Yeah, so the the first customer that we actually got was I would think of them as a unicorn. This was BMW, and uh, as a startup, you know BMW doesn't quite work with startups. So we actually found them at a conference where my co-founder was speaking. We got talking, and you know we pitched what the problem that we were solving, and they said that's the problem that they have, right? So we brought them in as a, what we call them as product advisor program. It's sort of our take on like the design partner program that VCs talk about. The difference being in the design partner, the focus is really about like what, you know, what does the web page look like and, you know, what widget are you going to press? And given that we are a data machine learning company, we needed more in terms of understanding the problem space itself. So we call them a product advisor. We brought them on and uh, they use the product for maybe like uh, six months or so, we didn't ask them for payment. And 
at some point they felt confident enough to actually say, we are going to roll this out to our developers. And that's sort of how we won the confidence and, and then made them a customer, right? And so we had a similar play with uh, a number of other early customers, except we were using LinkedIn outreaches. We kind of solved this enterprise-like problem. And um, one thing that I failed to mention is like, like one of our sort of insights into the company was like, there's so much data in your delivery process that we want to kind of use the data to use bring in AI and machine learning techniques to sort of fundamentally rethink the space, right? So what we needed was access to this data so our early sort of pitches were hard because we are now a startup telling somebody, hey, we need your data. You are a bigger company and that's why you have this data. Send us this data and this is what we are building. So it was a lot of one-on-one conversations where they, when the pain was high enough, they felt comfortable sending the data to us so that we could learn and kind of go back to them. That's a pretty impressive first customer to land. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> think so. And what was the journey like to finding product market fit? Yeah, how early on was it that you started to really feel that way? I think it was it was somewhere around the time where we started thinking about Series A. Is like we felt like we had a good enough set of customers, an early set of customers that told to the fact that there is a problem here, right? We didn't quite know whether you know what the best way of getting these were, but given sort of me and my co-founders, decade and a half or in the space, we kind of were like, hey, this problem is real and here's customers like BMW and there's a handful of others um, that tell us that there is, you know, this is a valid problem, right? So that's sort of how we started thinking, well, we may have like a product market fit. And what's the go-to-market motion look like today? So today it is uh, um, what I would call it in a, a version of inside sales slash transactional sales. And we didn't quite get here right away, right? Our first sort of emphasis was like, let's build a product-led growth company because I was at Atlassian. I'd kind of seen that up close and personal and seen how that worked. There's magic in that. Certainly all VCs want you to do that. But like having seen that up close and personal, I was like, huh, this worked for Scott and Mike at Atlassian. We should try this out. We tried that out for, you know, maybe six, seven months. And then we came to this place that, no, 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 the problem that we are solving is truly enterprise, right? So we started talking to enterprises and we went for an, for an enterprise sales motion. And in that journey, we felt like our the VPs of engineering would immediately latch onto the problem. They would get what we're doing, but then the solution would be handed off to somebody on the, the middle lines to take over. And they didn't quite have the context as the VPs had, and we would flounder. And so we finally came to this place that, oh, the right place to land is somewhere on the middle management, your director of engineering, director of QA. They are close enough to the problem. They see the problem day in and day out. And if they are motivated, they can drive that because the VPs of engineering usually see the big picture very well. So we kind of gone sort of all the way. And now we are like, okay, we went to PLG, we went to enterprise, and now we are on this inside sales, I would call sort of middle up uh, or middle down, however you call it. When it comes to your market category, how do you think about the category? Is it software testing or, or what is the category? Yeah, that has been a challenge actually. So the approach that we've done is so fundamentally new, right? 
that we don't quite fit in any existing categories, which if you are like a product marketer, that is a very exciting thing because you can say, I'm, I, I'm just creating a new category. But as sales and marketing, it means you have to go and educate the market on, on this, right? So we don't quite fit the testing management or the testing standard scenarios. We don't fit the observability scenarios. So we've, we brought like this layer that sits about, you know, all sort of testing frameworks and that's very hard to categorize. Now, meanwhile, what's happened in the last six months as we've been talking to the enterprises that we are helping, we found that, oh, we were looking at this from, a, I would think like a surgeon, we had like a surgical knife. We knew like, if you had long test suite test run times, we can come in and voila, in like two months, you'll be running faster. That's a very you know surgeon way of thinking. But there is a broader problem here, which is how do you deal with you know issues that come in once you run your tests? Like there's a whole swath of workflow and things that happen that nobody seems to be solving for. And we've decided to take a solid aim for that. And we call that the sort of the bug triaging, issue triaging problem. And that I think fits in the larger bug category management space. However, even in, we don't quite fit that space too. What I think we fit is like, we're creating a new subcategory in that bug category and, you know, helping there. So the category I think is test failure intelligence and management. So that's, that's where I think we are, we'll soon start talking about. And from a market- Actually, you're the first person I'm, I'm talking to outside the company about that. Yeah. Ooh, breaking news here on the podcast then about the new category that's coming. My question is just around noise. So you know, if we look at the landscape today, there's a lot of startups that are in this you know, general space trying to sell to engineering leadership teams. So from a marketing perspective, what are you doing to rise above the noise and, and really capture their attention? That's a great question. And the thing is, like, one of the problems in this space is like when you're selling to devs and quality engineers, they are really, really suspicious of anything that sounds marketing, right? And I used to be a developer. I transitioned onto the dark side and marketing and so on. And so my marketing side creeps up in my copy and like I'm instantly corrected within the organization. It's no, 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 it's, it's not going to be real. So what we have done is we really focused on like creating good quality content, right? So we are creating a bunch of blogs around a number of, what we internally call as pillars. And those pillars are what we are sort of going and writing content. And that's really how we are pushing, you know, getting ourselves differentiated. The other piece that works for us is um, me and my co-founder are very well known. He much more in the industry than I am. And so anytime, you know, he speaks, people listen. So we tend to use him judiciously. So between that and the blogs and then sort of LinkedIn sort of outreaches, that's how we kind of tend to get to people to listen to us. And when I look at the website today, the messaging is just so dialed in. So launch fearlessly, 80% of your tests are probably pointless. How early on or how long did it take for you to have messaging so crisp and clear and, and powerful? I'm guessing that wasn't day one? That wasn't day one. We got there pretty early, but I'll sound like a... You know, one of those gurus where I'll say like, ha, ah, we knew this well all along and like, you know, it's just been phenomenal. It's not quite, you're always sort of, you know, playing with words and 
trying things out and then putting that on your sales copy and pitching that and seeing how that that's evolving so i feel like it seems very dialed in but as we look at the broader swath of problems we have long ways to go candidly right so that's that's how i feel about it as i mentioned there in the intro you've raised over 12 million dollars to date what have you learned about fundraising throughout that journey few things so we happen to be fairly fortunate because we were well known in the industry that when we decided we were going to build something here we got tons of interest from people that we had worked with in the past so that's how we raised our seed right but somewhere post seed i started getting so many inbound requests and i started entertaining all of them and uh, at some point it distracted me away from building the company and that's one of the lessons that i took away is like you know just focus on building the product and like you know don't worry about the inbound requests or like what other vcs are thinking about you just just focus on building the company the other thing that i learned and i have given this to a few founder friends of mine is like some founders just view investors as a necessary evil that they want to just take the money and say shoo shoo to the guy and say like don't disturb me right i know it all and my experience has been in contrast right the journey to building a company is is not easy and these investors have seen a number of people kind of go through that and they do have like really good words of wisdom and so when you're down and you're like you know not feeling all that great they come up with suggestions that are useful and you can bring that in so like that's something that i brought in as well but ultimately it's sort of it's your plan you execute on them and unless you're doing something atrocious they don't really come in and tell you what what to do or what not to do at least a good investors so those are some of my learnings from investors now let's imagine that you are starting the company again today from scratch based on everything they've learned so far and outside of fundraising what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself i would start demand generation much much earlier way earlier than i did what i did was uh, as we were finding these product advisors me and and we hired an early sales person on the team a fantastic guy we both were making these linkedin outreaches and kind of going through the messaging and reaching out and so on and so forth we could have scaled this up way better if we had like a demand and person helping us reach out through various channels and build that for us so that's my that's my big takeaway it's always a challenge it's like oh my product isn't quite ready should i be putting money in generating demand and my answer is yes final question for you let's zoom out 3 to 5 years into the future what's the big picture vision that you're building so the big picture vision is really this notion of you know helping people manage test failures right every software team out there is dealing with like this fire hose of test failures and for some reason nobody is paying attention to actually helping people deal with that there's this massive workflow that happens between devs qas engineering managers qa managers and all of that is manual and i feel like we've just with our predictive test selection we just took like one baby step towards it and there's just a bunch of other problems that we can solve to improve the software delivery life cycle so that's our big picture vision for the next 3 to 5 years Amazing. Well, we are up on time here, so we will have to wrap. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in that and just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? 
they can come on to launchableinc.com. That's the best place to follow us. Amazing. Harpreet, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building and, and share some of those lessons that you've learned along the way. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know it's going to be a hit with the audience as well. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. All right, keep it done. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.